Hello, everyone. Welcome to a brand new episode of One Vision. Joining us today is Scott Estrada, public policy professional and adjunct professor of law at Georgetown University. Thank you so much for joining us at the show today, Scott. Thank you all for having me uh, to be here. So, um, first off, for those of you who had not listened to Scott speak at the recent FinTech Talents North America, I absolutely urge you to go back and do the replay. Scott delivered a very inspirational keynote at the very beginning of the event, very recently. And what caught our eye was the story that you shared, Scott, about payday lending. It was both thought-provoking and personal, and frankly, not something that we would typically hear in the FinTech conference. Um, can you relate that story a little bit for our listeners? And curious to hear, why did you choose to, to share that with the audience? So I spent a lot of time preparing for that, for that keynote. Um, it was a bit of a daunting uh, task uh, for the state of the nation. And uh, it was one of those, if, if I had six hours to deliver a speech on the amount of problems we're facing, it, it wouldn't be enough. So I, I really focused on kind of my own experiences, both in my life and in my professional career. And it goes to my, my central belief that you know, there's an absolute necessity of, of a narrative of, of personal stories in all aspects. And I know this is, you know, kind of been a catchphrase everywhere from marketing departments to corporate branding all the way to you know, political stump speeches. But um, I think, you know, narrative in its truly disruptive form is when it's actually presented as a challenge to any incumbent power structure, whatever, whatever you're talking about. It's when it's forcing the reality of people's lives and the empirical day to day. Um, as you know, challenges to be acknowledged, to be incorporated, to be heard, and that applies across the board. Whether we're talking about financial services, whether we're talking about law, whether we're talking about uh, literature, you know, the English major in me continues to to read an inordinate amount of, of post-colonial literature, where the whole notion of unacknowledged stories has been one of the most disruptive forces for social equity. Um, you know, in modern times. So I try to incorporate that into my work. I try to incorporate that into any panel discussions or presentations I I deliver to, again, really challenge folks to kind of rethink and reimagine how they approach their work as, as I try to constantly do to myself. And the only way I accomplish that is by hearing other people's stories, whether it's consumers, whether it's people, whether it's friends, whether it's colleagues, whether it's uh, ideological adversaries with varying levels of success and volume of voice, but it's always been one of the most enriching um, and productive uh, platforms to, to go through that. And, you know, I won't uh, force your listeners to hear the story again. I, I would encourage you to go see it. I know that's a bit self-serving, but, um, you know, when we talk about financial services, especially, there is a real uh, tendency for uh, vulnerable and excluded communities, both victims of you know, historical marginalization and overt and implicit racism that have just got left out of so many, uh, so many discussions. And not only the discussions, but in the actual products and the actual policies that structure our day-to-day -day lives, and especially the economic policies, which 
you know, make or break generations of economic prosperity and can be the difference between whole communities prospering um, and or, or struggling. You have a lot of extensive experience with those agencies and policy stakeholders that sort of have crafted um, some improvements in the ways that those communities can be included. And you've, you've, you've had almost a decade of experience in financial services, but all of that experience is very, very different than working in a fintech startup. So let's talk about what prompted you to join a firm and, and what your sort of expectations were around you know, those differences as you started and, and what's caught you by surprise so far? That's a great question. And one that I've, I got um, a lot when I transitioned and, and something I asked myself and, and talked with quite a bit of folks. Um, working backwards is that, you know, the long and short of it is that when I went from my previous position um, at a nonprofit uh, advocacy think tank organization focused on consumer financial protection, uh, with a particular focus on communities of color and vulnerable communities and crafting policies that further and, and remediate past inequities that um, I saw my opportunity to actually be a bridge between the civil rights and consumer group communities and the industry. And I really bought into to the mission of, of uh, a firm. I mean, you know, you can probably look at past interviews and congressional testimony where I, I was quite skeptical of, of, you know, a lot of the promises of fintech generally to kind of solve the world's problems, um, especially in the financial service sector where um, the evolving technology platforms has really um, created a lack of, of distinction between responsible lenders and, and predatory lenders or even bad actors and good actors. So my my laser focus was, you know, how can we protect consumers, how craft policies that protect and foster economic growth. And one of the things that really sold me on a firm is, you know, past the mission statement, past the marketing, when you look at the actual product and you look at the actual vision of the CEO, uh, Max, um, I bought in, you know, and I bought in with the expectation and the uh, assurance that, you know, disruptive, unpopular opinions would always be welcome and that I can really push the envelope and really um, build something that's consumer first in a public policy realm and look at the economics of the product to ensure that the alignment of the consumer interest and the company are the same. So there's always a lot of work to be done, always a lot of collaborations to be made, but um, I really saw it as a bridge between what I've spent, uh, you know, a decade doing and actually a chance to kind of jump into the industry arena and be part of something on the ground up that might reset the table on how we think of, of financial services. So. As you said, prior to the nonprofit space, I worked both in the uh, Obama administration and the Office of Management and Budget in the White House, and uh, for then Minority Leader Harry Reid, economic. So I've, I really approached this space on all, you know a lot of different seats at the table, um, and uh, actually working in the industry, you know, in the trenches, trying to build a sustainable, scalable business while also putting consumers first. Um, was a challenge that I just couldn't, I, I, you know, I couldn't give up. Um, I, I couldn't miss that chance. So it's been twelve, uh, about fourteen months at a firm. So it, 
simultaneously feels like 14 years and 14 days uh, because it's it's been a whirlwind. Obviously, the uh, pandemic has kind of grounded uh, a lot of the outreach and advocacy to, in terms of travel, but uh, we're still able to do uh, quite a bit. So, you know, that that really was the uh, driving force of, of what, you know, what, what, why I switched. I mean, like I said, I've been at a firm 14 months. If you asked me if I'd work in the private sector 16 months ago, I, I probably would, would say no. Uh, but that could be said about every career transition I had, whether it was from an attorney to uh, public policy or uh, or to Capitol Hill or Capitol Hill to the White House or the White House to the Senate. So it, it seems the only uh, consistency in my career path is that, um, I, I, you know, I always fail accurately for the next step, but in the best possible way. I think what is cool about that is a lot of times when we when we work with let's say um, folks that are in policy or folks that are in fintech startup, those two circles don't typically collide. So you'll see a lot of um, people with really, really, really rich and deep experience in that one sector or a silo. And we don't have enough of a cross to get all of us an appreciation on how the other side work. And, and I believe that to build an inclusive product, something that, as you say, the bridge, you need someone that has experience from different seats of the table that can bring the different aspects on how to build something that is sustainable and responsible. So kudos to you for that. I, I think it's, it's amazing. Um, speaking of how we started the conversation um, when you delivered the keynote of um, State of the Nation, um, looking at where we are right now, state of the economy, um, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like I've aged 10 years in the last six months. Um, it's just, uh, like you say, there are so many challenges, but opportunities, right? Depends on how we look at it. Um, so, for example, we are still having record unemployment. Many of the small businesses are still closed. Um, by and large, it has impacted the Black community and Latinx community more so. Um, one of the figures that came from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York found that black businesses have had 41% closure rate compared to 17% for white businesses. Um, the other day, we also saw new stats about how over 50 million of Americans are suffering from food insecurity. One in four are children. Having all of that stat in the backdrop, and understanding that and knowing that the United States of America is supposed to be the richest country on the surface of the planet. And yet, faced with all of these challenges, how do we rebuild? How do we even think about who needs help the most and how do we get them the help? Because at times it almost feels overwhelming, if that's even the right word for it. Yeah, that, that's spot spot on in terms of that feeling of overwhelming, which is something I have to uh, beat back almost every morning with endless cups of coffee and, um, you know, uh, walking my dog. But to, to preserve 
mental health has been pretty, you know, been at the forefront of, of everyone in dealing with this new world. So um, I try to put that energy into my work, try to put that energy into my community, um, both in, you know, volunteering or helping or even with my family and friends checking in with folks. Um, but when it really, you know, comes time to start solving some problems, um, I, I feel fortunate that I'm in a space um, where I can contribute um, to finding those solutions. So I think your question is is, is very insightful. And, and I think we have to back up to the context of the question first, and then I can take a stab at it is that what COVID has done, you know, one of the things, obviously it's had tremendous and, and catastrophic impacts on health and the economy, but what it has done as a result is elevate some of the systemic fissures and in this, the system, both the economy, the social safety net, and that really has put um, communities that have already been on the precipice of, of economic um, ruin or financial instability and thrown them even farther uh, into the fire because the inequalities that exist both on home ownership, uh, savings, financial security, healthcare, um, on, those are a large part of that is explained uh, empirically and quantitatively through, um, you know, a, a legacy of discrimination and legalized racism, both in government policies that date all the way back to the founding of the country, but, you know, in the modern times, the New Deal, whether it was uh, who got FHA insurance for their home, who got the New Deal beneficiaries of Social Security, there was, you know, intentional, overt, and systemic uh, marginalization and um, kind of an ousting of African-Americans, immigrant communities, Latinx communities, women, um, so the repercussions of that through generations, especially when you look at the home ownership gap, um, explain you know over half of the overall race uh, racial wealth gap, according to, to research by I think it's Prosperity Now that did it. So when you look at pandemics, black swans, financial crises, like all of this already throws into more turmoil and more relief um, a necessity or obligation to rebuild those communities that have been marginalized. So when we look at what goes what goes forward, I, you know, that's where I think federal stimulus uh, reinvestment, the states, and this is not let alone the, the health uh, uh, solutions, but in the economic financial services uh, context, what we really need is to invest in those that infrastructure that has been not only lacking, but or many communities have been excluded from. So that includes uh, access to affordable housing, that includes workforce and development training, uh, safe uh, jobs, access to retirement funds. So all of this social infrastructure that was so lacking even before the pandemic or before the Great Recession, and now has been even further endangered that really needs to be the target of a recovery from an economic point of view um, in parallel, obviously, with the health uh, repercussions and, and recovery from both medical care, health insurance and the like. So the only way that's going to happen, theme that I'm talking about is collaborative synergy between policymakers, state, local, federal, community groups, industry, everyone 
stepping up and taking their share of accountability and responsibility for the society we live in. And that sounds almost cliche. That sounds almost, you know, uh, DC talking point, but that has real repercussions and that there are ways and there are examples of how different companies, different uh, policymakers have really stepped up and shown the first step on that path. Here's the first step in this recovery and how we can make inclusive and equitable policy decisions in the recovery. It's supporting black businesses, ensuring that everyone has access to healthcare, ensuring that essential workers, um, you know, are given the proper um, protective gear, the proper medical coverage, the proper compensation for that elevated risk. So there, there's a, a, a slew of policy options that have already started to not only come to fruition, but have been started to map out. And in the financial services sector, um, in my space, a lot of that's going to focus on credit score, risk assessment, how to measure uh, and underwrite under borrowers looking for access to affordable credit in the future that have been uh, impacted by the pandemic and then might have fell behind on bills or rent or any of these other indicators of credit risk through no fault of their own, through no other reason than a life-changing you know, uh, pandemic that affected everyone. Let's, let's talk about that impact a little bit because you know when I was at Santander, one of my favorite groups to work with were the compliance folks and also the folks that were working with the regulatory agencies. And, you know, during my years at Santander, we were in a lockbox because they had done all sorts of things that the regulators didn't like. And so um, nobody seemed to visit the folks that were working with the regulators or were working on compliance. And I never really understood that because my meetings with them were always very exciting, right? Because I would come in and say, hey, we're doing all these really cool things. Um, and they were always really super engaged about making things better. And, and that's... You know the the biggest loss I think in the last couple couple decades in this business is that we're we're afraid somehow of like engaging regulators and engaging policy folks within the space and everybody wants to do something that helps others and we we need to kind of get back to that. So let's talk about that impact through policy and regulation, especially in a week when we're mourning the loss of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg this titan of law and the way that she impacted especially for women and made our lives better. She said, fight for the things that you care about, but do it in a way that will lead others to join you. So when you think about the space here and now in consumer lending and at a firm, you know, what, what can, can we do to safeguard consumer well-being and level that playing field? You talked about some examples around finance and debt and access and affordability. How, how do we look at policy and regulation? You know, what do you tell people when you talk about what you do in your job and, and how could other people in financial services engage both policy and regulation within their institution and in the broader aspect of it? Uh, that's, um, I mean, firstly, I, I, the loss of uh, Justice Ginsburg has been a tremendous uh, void that's going to be uh, felt across the whole country for generations. And, um, me and my friends have, you know, we really, it's uh, a tragic loss. And, and now it's time to take up the mantle and continue that fight, as you said, in terms of, of all aspects. So, uh, yeah, on, on a personal level, that just uh, really hit hard. So I, I think the, as the nation recovers from that, um, 
it should inspire us to kind of live her message. And, and it's it's a message that's not only worthy of taking up, but but again, a challenge to all of us. And, and in my space, um, I think this idea of collaborative regulation, as you said, is is key because it is the only way that the regulators and public policy can keep up and be responsive to the exceedingly exponential pace of uh, technology innovation, especially in consumer lending. Have consumer uh, regulations written 30, 40 years ago before even the advent of the internet, you know, somehow being applicable to uh, fintech. But on the converse side is that there are human universal civil rights that never become outdated or never become a thing of the past. And it's that collaborative regulation which ensures that the spirit of equity and justice uh, evolve in tandem with responsive regulation. Because at the end of the day, a regulator is about accountability and ensuring that the marketplace is fair and open. But the only way that's not a, a you know, a preclusive with being responsive and collaborative with the industry. So as you said, it's this collaboration that's key. And I think that's where you have a lot of working groups, advisory councils, um, that engagement is key. And I think that's something that a firm has embraced. That's something that our CEO has publicly stated that collaborative regulation is the way forward. And I think that is uh, the only way to ensure that we have both responsive regulation and ensure the consumer protection and spirit of civil rights uh, is not only put front and center, but integrated into the very path forward. Um, so what some of that looks like is, is again, just to kind of broaden out the context of the, the playing field is, is where we're at, especially in financial services, is that um, there's nothing more dangerous than kind of the generic the status quo, and, and I don't mean that, you know, in, in, in typical Silicon Valley uh, speak of move fast and break things. But what I mean is that once we once we start seeing how things are as a result of choice and his and policy decisions, then things become um, not just not just uh, you know take it for granted reality, but the consequence of policy choices. So when you look at something like uh, financial services and you look at credit risk and you look at all the factors that determine if somebody is going to get credit or not. So it's, you know, bill payments, savings, income, um, a lot of different alternative data points in terms of, uh, you know, uh, if you have a car notes, a mortgage, what are your credit limit? All those are, are socially determined factors that aren't just occurring in a vacuum. And those without family wealth, those who don't have savings, financial will fall behind on credit card debt if they lose their job, much more than somebody if they had, uh, you know, family members to borrow from or savings in the bank or, or things like that. So when we talk about artificial intelligence or machine learning, especially in its utilization of credit underwriting, there is, there can't be this taken for granted that, you know, um, are we doing, you know, are we recovering from the, uh, the economic crash or remediating past injustices? So. If you look at everything from the automated, uh, like like AI determinations of who gets credit, how much do you pay for your health insurance, how much do you pay for your car insurance, what the automatic temperature in is in a building, like there's huge amount of taken for grantedness that um, has to be disrupted from the ground up. And the only way to do that, to kind of tie it back to what we were originally talking about is having um, a really diverse group 
of folks in the room that are making this policy in a space that values their story and their narrative and their expertise and that blending of their life stories and what they bring to the table. So when you have data scientists, computer engineers, uh, you know, C-suite executives, accountants, once you have that uh, integration of life history and their particular narrative, especially those that are not the generic, you know, male, white, affluent, or, or you know, third generation college parents own them. Like once you start incorporating radical new voices and foster a culture that incorporates them into the very product and policies, then a necessary result is going to be a more inclusive output. And I think when we talk about regulation, it's on both sides. You know, like I think a couple of weeks ago through the Brookings Institute, um, uh, Brookings scholar Aaron Klein and a Georgetown law professor, Chris Brummer, uh, did a webinar of where are the black regulators and that there is such a absence of black regulators since the beginning of the country that it's it's unacceptable and, and almost contemptible because you need it on the industry, you need it on the uh, regulator side, you need that diversity, you need that perspective. So that is probably one of the most um, ostensibly easy things to implement in terms of um, you know, saying we need more diversity, but one of the most disruptive forces when you actually create a culture that not only allows people to bring their life experience and their narrative to that job. So on the public policy space, you know, this collaboration between civil rights groups, community groups, regulators, industry folks, um, it's really about, you know, and I'll dive in a little bit into the weeds and then we'll come back up. But when you look at FICO as its ability to do credit risk assessment, um, we're clearly going to need to expand past that in a post-COVID world because there's no way for that credit model to accurately and just, you know, and and with equity analyze somebody's ability to repay if they've been impacted by COVID. It is not built to incorporate such a black swan event. And again, people who might have fell behind on their rent or their bills by no fault of their own other than the business that they work for had to shut down because of a, a state uh, governor mandate. So it's expanding past traditional credit models and looking at data points, whether it's different data sets that collect, whether you made payments to your cell phone, whether, you know, uh, your landlord reports your payments, um, whether, you know, the, that the income, the student, so all these different data points. Now, the the danger or the, the we're really going to need to step uh, collaboratively outside of that is that with all these alternative data points come a whole host of fair lending questions of what data points are being used um, in compliance with the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, the Fair Housing Act, and all these regulations that ensure that data isn't being uh, used either as proxies for protected classes, whether it's race, gender, family status, um, you know, uh, public assistance income. So that that's where disparate impact, I think, to answer your question, is probably one of the most central aspects that's going to be front and center, is that how do we incorporate alternative data sets into credit risk assessment and ensure compliance uh, with uh, ECOA, especially on the disparate impact part? And I think that's where the regulators can really step in and provide spaces where innovation can both flourish in terms of what data can be used, but also ensuring that consumer protection isn't taking a back seat uh, to kind of this, you know, an experimental design. So that's that's a huge one. 
Another one is, is consumer data privacy. Everything from your Apple Watch to your you know, search engine to your car navigation system. The amount of data being collected about each one of us on an ongoing basis could fill the Library of Congress. Um, and the affirmative opting in of the sale or transfer of that data, the control over that data, the knowledge of what's being collected about you it is going to be key. And a lot of this in the financial service space is the aggregators that will collect all this data that can be used to assess credit risk. You quickly get into dangerous territory, but kind of this black box, you know, outcomes this veneer of an objective decision, but with no um, eyes or thought on what's going inside of it. Uh, you know, what are the inputs? So that, that's another big one. I mean, I think some of the broader community economic development policy decisions is the support of minority and black owned banks, because they are, are the ones um, in the communities in the front line that have that connection to the folks that are providing possible data points to them that are unavailable to the broader industry that can be used to really get an you know to really provide uh, financial inclusion uh, because they might be off the grid in terms of traditional FICO calculations so we talk about credit invisibles you know multi-generational families where folks are paying rent to their um, families um, who make cash payments uh, who don't account you know we're kind of operating outside of the financial mainstream so then the real policy question is do we want to get all those folks into a bank account so that they can be into this broader spectrum of data collection and, and give them the, the credit footprint they're going to need? Or do we meet them where they are and actually create, a, you know, a, an ancillary or tangential system to capture where they are? And, and those are, these are all questions that have no easy answers and, and need these diverse uh, voices in the room. But again, it just goes to the point, to, to your original point is the collaboration is key and the more platforms we have for dialogue. Uh... You know, it's it's interesting this week as well, you know, when we think about the way that, that financial services is structured and then you have the CEO of Wells Fargo coming out saying that, well, it might sound like an excuse, but the unfortunate reality is that we have a very limited pool of black talent to recruit from. Um, no, right? I mean, so Wells Fargo was fined $175 million just because it discriminated against Black and Latino home buyers. We need to understand what's in that Black box. We need to understand why, you know, we, we systematically don't have, to your point, people of color and, and other representation in not just regulators, but within the upper echelons of these banks. We need to change the dialogue around financial services. And, you know, that the way that Silicon Valley and the way that financial services has sort of evolved, you know, we need more discussion to talk about protections. Um, so really, really appreciate you bringing up some of those points. No, of course. And you know, I, um, I think my blood pressure goes up quite a bit whenever I hear the phrase that there's not enough black or brown talent um, in the financial services industry. It, it's um, empirically false and thematically dangerous because I have plenty of friends much smarter than me, Latinx, African-American, Southeast Asia, APAC, like the, the uh, tremendous diverse group of friends that work in financial services and attorneys just, you know, struggling to have their voice heard where they are or, or rock, you know, skyrocketing in their career and very public personas and, and profiles. And, um, 
that is something that has boggled my mind is how do we how do we get rid of that sentiment once and for all because we have the representation we have the people um but yet it persists and and i think that is um not speaking specifically here but i think folks who hold that belief just don't interact outside of a bubble that looks very much like them and it's 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 there's a whole world out there um and you can't hide from it. Or to paraphrase what um, Brett said yesterday, they have been living under the rock. Yeah. To which I responded, they should just remain under the rock and let someone else do yeah. the ship. Because clearly whatever it is that they're doing is not working. And I agree with you. It's absolutely not a pipeline problem. There are plenty of amazing people with amazing talents everywhere um and and that's one of the things that we try to accomplish with our show is that we want to bring different voices we want to bring diverse voices i am sick and tired of hearing the same people speaking in the same conference talking about the same themes all the time we need different opinions because we know whatever it is that we've been doing is not working for many um and and to your point it was interesting there was a new york times story I believe recently, that highlighted the pictures of everyone that's in power within our society. And those pictures tell a million stories. They're all very homogeneous. You look at, from a regulator perspective, policymakers perspective, from um, those that hold power in the most quote unquote valuable companies within the United States, they all look exactly the same. And we need to change that. And that that really, hits home, especially in, in the space of machine learning and AI for, for all aspects of civil society and credit. Because like if you Google, you know, the, the example like doctor, you know, and the first 20 pictures are white males as the stock photo, you know, imagine if you're a machine learning model and you do a million pictures and 999,000 are white males, then that model is going to see a doc, that's going to be the normal, that's going to be the generic, and that's going to be fed into models of credit accessibility, uh, you know, career outputs, uh, it, it has so, the scope uh, is so, so broad when you have problems like that. And it really comes uh, in different spaces and forcing um, accountability to, to be inclusive of the reality that's around you. So I, yeah, I, it's, um, and especially on panels, when you said it's like a lot of the same conversations from a lot of the same folks, you know, I, good or bad, it's just productive tension is what's missing in a lot of these of these discussions. And then, you know, once you have four panelists and they all agree on everything, many times that's not going to be a very instructive panel, no matter what it is. Um, so, I, or what is the, the, the moniker for a manal? You know, if you have for you know four folks that all look the same talking about financial inclusion um and and it's not reflected in the discussions that they've actually talked to any of these communities it's very frustrating and then um so i'm I'm really supportive of what y'all are doing here and and it's you know i very much look forward to kind of staying engaged in your conversations and, and you know um going back and listening to a lot of the other episodes i did listen to a few uh, before joining and uh, y'all are doing some great stuff here.
And I remember distinctly one of the things that you said in your keynote, uh, which stuck with me. It's um, not only we need to get different voices in the seat of the table, we need to put a mic in front of them so their voices are heard. Um, that That is very, very true. And it's very similar to what uh, Arlen told us um, in, in one of our conversations. She said, you know, if you do have the chance to make it, on the stage, let someone else shorter than you stand in front of you, because it's all of our responsibility to make sure that we uplift the rest in our ecosystem. So we have more voices, more diverse opinions, and more representation, because it does matter. Um, so before we close up the conversation, one of the things that we've been talking about, right, throughout the last half hour or so, is around collaboration, it's around um, how we need to think about things differently. Going forward, what are some of the interesting opportunities that you see um, or things that you wish would happen? Well, that, that's um, something I, I try to at least spend 10 minutes a day on just to say, okay, what, what are we working toward here? So this is uh, in my personal capacity, you know, my opinions of, of what we need is that, you know, I think in the financial services uh, space, um, a lot of the developments from the financial regulators, uh, a lot of big decisions are coming up, whether it's, you know, the digitalization of, of uh, records, disclosures, banking, uh, whether it's the form of the Community Reinvestment Act, which was passed in the 60s as a civil rights law for banks uh, to, for, to be accountable to the communities where they're located. And then the question of, well, what if you're a bank with no branches? So questions like that. So there's a lot of decisions that have to be made um, and part of the um, administrative procedures act is you know the notice and comment period so a lot of what i'm pushing for and and you know at, at a firm and community groups among my friends is um, by legal necessity the regulators have to address the comments that they are given to in their in their period so um, encouraging folks to weigh in you know as institutions as community groups as as uh, private citizens, uh, just as folks like get passionate and call their local senator or local congressperson um, to to get into issues, they need you know start mobilizing and organizing to get commentary and uh, um, you know yeah commentary into regulators as they make these huge decisions, especially in the financial services uh, space. So that that would be one. Two is a lot of what I, what I was hoping is, you know, to develop some national platforms for collaboration. The, the problem is, and just the stark reality of the limitations on public discussions that folks from industry can have, that regulators can have, um, you know, there is a limitation on what you'd be able to get a group of people in a room to say, you know, uh, on the record. So I, I think there is a need for conferences like FinTech Talents where you can have um, a much more formalized platform where you can have a diversity of voices of community groups, industry folks, even you know certain uh, staff from uh, public policy offices where there, there's a little more leeway to have those discussions than um, in, in other contexts. So that that level of, of collaboration would be another one in terms of thematic. And, and third is, um, to to really kind of integrate economic equity as 
a consideration of a civil right as as a, a, a basic right in civil society is that the ability to have economic parity and financial um, stability is as a fundamental aspect of being, you know, an American. And that's what my parents moved to this country for in, in the late seventies. And um, I think that's one of the fundamental promises that make this so unique um, and to ensure that that is effectuated um, properly. So I, I know those are kind of very qualitative uh, answers to your question, but I, I think they, they have some real repercussions on the nitty gritty of the policy space. And I, I've spent, more time than I want reading uh, statutory and legislative texts on some of these, um, but it's it's they are connected in ways you know that are um, inextricable. I I can't I can't agree more. Um, a lot of times we think about DC as some far flung place where lawmakers, decision makers say, keep themselves in the room in a the chamber, they make decisions and it doesn't affect us, but it does. It does impact us for generations and generations, like the examples that you, you talked about. And economic equality definitely has to be a civil right. It, it, we, we're living in 2020 in this country. People should at least have access to shelter and food. We should not have mile long people waiting at the food bank, just try to get themselves fed. We should not have millions of children that have no access to internet that lose the entire school year. We should not have people that have to juggle between whether or not they're gonna spend the money to pay for the medicine versus putting food on the table. That should not be a question where we are today. And if that's what we're facing, if we have people that cannot afford food, the simplest, simplest means for survival, something is really wrong and we need to change it. And we need to change it in every single level. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what role you play, doesn't matter what position you are in, we all have a job and a responsibility to make this right. And so thank you so much for joining us in a conversation today. We can literally keep talking for days on this. Um, we very much appreciate your time. Thank you, Scott. And thank you so much for listening in to another episode of One Vision. Talk to you next week.